welcome to a new episode of Coach Pat Chat. Um, so recently, when I first started the podcast, um, I, Dale Sidebottom was one of the early people that came on my podcast. And he realized how much I valued play. I did a webinar with him on play. And um, he told me to get in touch with uh, Dr. Allison James, who I have the luxury of having on the podcast today. Um, she has a long history with play. Uh, she's a Lego, how do you call it? A leg, a, Lego Serious Play Facilitator. Lego Serious Play Facilitator. She was a professor at the University of Winchester. She has many publications and books that revolve around play at almost every level and using imagination and whatnot. And um, I'm really excited to talk about those things and I think you could really educate the world, um, hopefully to whoever listens, um, on the importance of play and how to bring it back. So welcome. Hi. Thank you, and I, I hope I hope so. <laughs> um, so to begin, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and your path to what got you here? Sure. Well, whenever I think about my academic career, I always I always think of it really as a series of happy accidents, <laughs> um, because I. I, I never intended to get into education. Um, I did a modern foreign languages degree at university and I wanted to do all sorts of things. I, I, I worked at the Royal Institute of British Architects. I uh, trained as a reflexologist. I worked in a natural medicine clinic. I did translating. And I think I just, I, I kept trying to find my path as it were. And, and you know what it's like when you, you feel very energetic and fired up about something. And each time you try a new job or a new venture, there's something in your head that goes, yeah, that's not it. That's not it yet. That's not quite the full package. And a girlfriend had said to me for ages, for goodness sake, just do a little bit of teaching. I think, no, 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 I don't want to do that. And uh, of course, stupidly, I should have listened. And finally, she persuaded me. And I, I got a, a, just a job teaching for a couple of hours a week in a, in a college. And the moment I walked in there, the moment I started being involved with students, I just thought, this is it. This is it. This I was looking for something that was had value that I felt would make my working life meaningful, that I loved, where I felt I could contribute, where I was dealing with things that 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 mattered to me. And and teaching did all of that. And so so that was wonderful. And then suddenly it all sort of snowballed a bit and I got more hours teaching and jobs in different colleges and rah rah rah. And um and that was all a bit sort of you know, complicated because you've got a young family and you're working in the evenings and you're doing all these sorts of things, hopping about. And then I got uh, invited to write a languages course for um, an art college, which was initially done for um, a particular program, which was media studies. And then it was rolled out and became a, a cross institutional program with several languages being taught, big team of teachers. And that was wonderful. I got the chance then to uh, project manage um, a consortium looking at uh, language learning in the creative arts using technology because those sort of th these things, and we're going back, you know, these days, learning in technology, it's just kind of what we're used to. Yeah. But I'm talking about the early 90s where, you know, integrating technology into language learning, this was a new thing, <laughs> a little bit radical. And, and of course, 
it, it, you had you were trying to reconcile three worlds at the time because the creative arts have their only way of their very you know their ways of practicing and being you had this new technology was coming in where did it fit where did it butt up against the disciplines and how can you learn a language and actually when I think about that and it's never occurred to me before I started really playing then because I was trying to work out how do all these things fit together. Also, if you're if you're teaching languages to creative arts students, you can pretty much bet your bottom dollar that they've gone there to be artists, makers, creators. <clears throat> they don't mind doing a bit of language learning on the side, but it's absolutely not the prime thing they've right. gone to do. And so you have to kind of captivate them, um, help help them help them enjoy it, help them learn it, help them start to value it. You win some, you lose some. Anyway, from there, uh, I became really interested in educational development, I guess. You know, I've always loved what makes people tick. And it's not just because I'm a nosy Parker. I just think there's something completely fascinating about why people are the way they are, you know, who they are, how they see themselves, what they do, what they achieve, what they prioritise, you know, blah, blah, blah. And... That, how people learn, what they bring to their learning experiences is absolutely part of that. So I think for me, through my teaching, through my academic journey, as I moved into educational development, it was all about how can I connect with people? How can they connect with the subject? How can they connect with each other? How can they find ways of learning that are going to be enjoyable, meaningful, and help them ex expand their horizons? And what you find along the way is that you get... A lot of people who absolutely espouse the notion of creative, alternative, playful approaches because they think, let's face it, if anything, you know, whatever works. And then you get other people who are wary of playful and creative approaches. You know, do they undermine the status of the subject? If it's a university, should you be learning in a certain way? Blah, blah, blah. And um, I suppose I was a bit of a rebellious child and therefore the rebellious <laughs> child in me is sort of stuck <laughs> with me in terms of thinking if this matters, if people like it, if it really works, if it helps their learning, then why can't you do these things? And so fast forwarding uh, from language learning, I moved, as I said, into educational development, loving working across institutions in terms of working with staff on how to deliver aspects of their programme. Of course, the great stuff about all of that is to me, I feel like I literally have been a lifelong learner. I know it's a cliche because I've had the chance to work with people in all sorts of disciplines. And and I guess I've probably learned more from them than they've learned from me because I've just had the opportunity to just you know, see how other people do things. And that's been absolutely incredible. So um, did the project staff, worked a lot with educational development, moved into educational management as an associate dean of learning and teaching, and then later uh, uh, as a director of an academic and professional service. But through all of that, I've loved seeing how people find different approaches to their teaching I, that's always captured my imagination and that I, I have to say very quickly you know that's not to say that a lecture well done or a seminar well facilitated or anything that is traditional learning is by definition bad of course it's not but we can we can do a lot of things badly we can do play badly let's face it I'm talking about 
being able to have a very variegated repertoire of teaching so that so that you can really allow students and you to explore a subject in the round in a multi-sensory way mm-hmm. and just have a, jo- a jolly good time. Um, that's probably a very rambly answer to your question. Um, uh, and, and I know we're going to talk about the present day in the research project in a little while, so I won't, I won't bang on about that just yet. <laughs> uh, well, I'm glad you answered it that way because you touched on a lot of good points. And being a, not just a PE teacher, but a teacher in these days, I think it's, it's so important to have different avenues and concepts and ways to reach students because I've said this on the podcast before, but um, a lot of people said uh, you were really open about that, but it's really not a big deal to me. Um, I grew up with ADHD, and I definitely have a different way of learning than other people do. Growing up, I really struggled with test taking. Um, But when there were classes where there was like same concept, same thing, study the same things, but um, we had a really good teacher back um, in high school that created the questions in almost like a skit slash physical activity way. And that, so oral presentation has always been my strong suit as opposed to written. Um, So I'm just one example, but kids these days, and you don't have to have, I I don't like to call it a disability because I don't feel like for me it's a disability. I know it affects people different ways, but um, I guess you could call it constraint that you can overcome. Let's put it that way. Um, yeah. Not only people with that situation, but just uh, any kid or is going to learn differently. Um, no, no kid is going to learn the same exact way. They may be very similar, but there's going to be just maybe one minuscule little fa- facet that they need some different type of learning. But the beauty of that is you can still do the lecture or whatnot. Um, and they will learn how to adapt to that and learn how to learn with that, but not if that's the only thing they're going to do the whole time because they can find success in another avenue as you were talking about, and then they can learn, I can understand this material um, now that's being explained to me this way. I'm going to learn how to learn it through the other ways. So I think that's a really strong point. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there are two things that, that have popped into my head there. One is, and, and I, know, I know we're going to talk about sort of Lego and Lego serious play in a little while as well, but I think that that's a very important um, method for being able to cater in that kind of in-the-round way for students. So you mentioned ADHD, and I designed uh, a Lego-based course for students um, uh, to look at at sort of a a critical evaluation of learning. Um, And, you know, most students really don't want to do that. You know, they they see it as an occupational hazard, but it's not terribly interesting. It's not as much fun as everything else. And so rather than make it very boring, I I, I made it Lego-based. But at the end, so there were three-hour workshops, and at the end, one of the girls stayed back, and she'd been absolutely brilliant the entire time through the three hours. She'd been engaged. She'd she'd talked. She'd built things. She'd shared with others. She'd done so many things. And she stayed behind. Her excuse was to help me pack away the Lego. But I, I was fairly sure it was actually to have the conversation she had with me. And she said, I really loved that workshop. I've got ADHD. And uh, and and I said, I honestly, I'd never have known 
because you were completely attentive, mm. focused, participating. You were just on it for the whole time. She didn't even go. I gave them all a, a tea break halfway through. She didn't even go on tea break. And she said, and, and I've never forgotten it, and I've written about it in, in lots of places, but she said, the thing was this, she said, if you'd done me a PowerPoint presentation, I would have been out the door in 10 minutes. Right. But she said, when I use my, when I use my fingers, I'm golden. Right. And I just thought, what a beautiful thing to say. <laughs> um, and I thought of something else. That's right. The other thing I thought of um, was um, that speaks to me a lot. I think whether you're using play, whether you're using creativity, imagination, physical sport, whatever, it is this notion of appreciative inquiry. So I think quite often what we do in formal education, or we certainly have done this in the past, you fall into the trap of concentrating on what you're not quite good at so if you're not very good at that let's just really concentrate on the thing you're not very good at um, so that you get better at that mm -hmm. but actually strengths-based learning also sort of takes this kind of view as well the other way is to think about what what are what do you like best what do you do best and how can you get more of it and it's a positive spin so you may well still be addressing the things that you're not quite so good at but the whole kind of mindset is it's a positive favorable much more inspiring slant right. I think you know I think it's much nicer to think about you know what's going well and how can we get more of it rather than let's focus on the things that are a bit rubbish yeah I really like that analysis um, yeah. yeah I couldn't agree more and um, I think you and I could probably talk on the different ways to educate kids uh, for hours. Um, but something I found really interesting, and I, I, I want to dive into it a little more, is the uh, value of play project, especially um, because we focus so much on the young ones. It's really cool to see how can we keep this going um, yeah. at an older age and stuff like that. So could you kind of dive into what exactly that is? And uh, so they all have an understanding. <laughs> Do you want me to say a little bit about the playwork that led up to that project? Yeah, Would that sure. be helpful? Yeah. So, um, uh, so um, I've I've already kind of outlined my my interest in creative and alternative approaches, but around about two thousand and nine, I suppose until two thousand and nine, I would have tended to talk talk about myself as being interested in creative and alternative teaching but purely by accident I found myself getting drawn into play um, by, by the sheer fact that I'd totally forgotten to do something for a research presentation so um, I um, sorry I don't know if that ping was was my email but I'm just turning it off sorry about yeah, that okay. um, so um, uh, I was lucky enough at the university I was working uh, at at the time, we had Etienne Wenger, who created the Communities of Practice uh, framework, come and work with us on pedagogic projects. And I was looking uh, at how the different ways that students can express uh, their reflections on their learning, a bit like I described in the Lego example just now. Um, and I was very interested in moving moving them away if they wanted to be moved away from, from not just I've done something and now I'm going to write about how I did it and what I thought of it and how well it went, but into trying to use 
more creative or sort of embodied approaches so that they could really think about things in different ways. Because I'm a firm believer that the medium is the message to totally uh, wrongly use Marshall McLuhan. But it is, you know, if I if I speak to you, I'll say one thing. If you ask me to write it down, I may say something else. If you ask me to build it in whatever I build it in, I might express something else. So there's all these different ways that we might say slightly different things about the same experience. So... There we were. We were supposed to be presenting our research to Etienne Wenger at nine o'clock on the Tuesday morning. I only looked at the instructions in good student fashion at about six o'clock the night before. And that was when I realised I was supposed to have created some kind of A1 artwork to illustrate my research. Panic stations, because absolutely no way was I going to be able to do that. Um, so in desperation, I ran to the children's toy cupboard because I had a young family at the time, fished out their Lego and thought, I'll just have to build my project in Lego and hope I get away with it. So cut a long story short, I built this huge model. I wrapped it in a bin liner. I put it on a board. I went up to London on a very packed commuter train holding this thing. You can imagine how popular I was. And um, I presented through using the Lego. And afterwards, somebody came to me and said, you like that, you would love Lego serious play and explained to me that it was... Um, is uh, a methodology that had been created by Johann Rees and Bart Victor and that it was a means of taking a three-dimensional um, creative and embodied and strategic approach to building concepts, complex problems, uh, challenges, anything that didn't have a straightforward answer through the use of this method. And I thought, oh yes, that does sound interesting. So again, so I did, I looked it up. I've, I've got in touch with somebody um, who was trained in the method and we collaborated for, for 18 months so that he could help me in my desire to create some courses using this method. And um, of course, in 2009, I don't, you know, times have moved on a little, but in 2009, if I'd gone to my dean and said, I would like you to pay for me to go and do a four-day course using Lego and I want you to buy me a whole heap of Lego so that I can use it in my teaching. It was not going to happen. You know, that sounded like, a, you know, we, what, in 2008, we'd had the, the, you know, the major financial crash. That just sounded like such a waste of resource. So, of course, what happens is you end up using your imagination, being a bit resourceful. You find other ways to try it out. So there was a member of staff who really liked the idea of teaching with Lego, said to me, well, look, if I provide you with students in the course, will you design me a course? Will you come and do the workshops? So I said, absolutely, I will. And so we did. We created, I created a big thing at the time is something called personal development planning. I don't know if you have uh, an, um, uh, an equivalent where you and, and where the listeners are. But it was really about that metacognitive uh, approach to upskilling students. So yes, they were learning about their subject, but what they were also learning about was their learning journey, how how they learn, what they need, what they need to improve on, um, and the kind of different strategies they can develop. And that's always fascinated me, you know, that sort of how people learn, what makes them tick. So that that was the course. We piloted it. Students loved it. They started talking to their friends. Their friends start asking their teachers why they didn't have Lego courses. And it kind of spiralled. So within 18 months, I had generated some project funding and I was able to buy the Lego for the institution mm. and to go and do my training. And from then, um, I just became very, very active in higher education using Lego Serious Play for all sorts of things and starting to collaborate with colleagues who also then trained as facilitators, whether it was, 
you know, exploring with a colleague uh, at the University of the Arts London, we created a series of stuckness workshops. They were actually for postgraduate students. We had postgrads, we had doctoral students, we had undergraduates oh, come wow. along. And basically, we did these workshops inviting anybody, they were free, they were open, anybody who was struggling with their learning to come along and do one of these Lego-based workshops and explore why that was. And so they built models of stuckness for themselves, for each other. They looked at the models, they spotted uh, resonances between them, they identified solutions, they created strategies for each other. So it was the ultimate kind of play-based, peer-learning kind of environment. And they were, they were really successful and a whole heap of other things besides. So I'm, I'm conscious you've asked about the present project, so I'll, I'll, I'll canter to the finish. Um, so along the way, I started publishing on, on my use of Lego series play. I met up with other colleagues who were really interested in play, also using Lego. Um, uh, I worked on um, uh, a kind of playful magazine called Exploring Play in HE with, with Professor Norman Jackson and Dr. Christina Rancy. And that was our first toe in the water for Christy and I were thinking, you know, well, who else is doing using play? Is anybody using play out there? And of course, when nobody talks about it, you think nobody's doing it. Right. But the moment two of you say, oh, we're doing this and we really like it and we really like what somebody else is doing, suddenly more people come out. So we thought on this, this magazine, oh, we'll get about five people. We had 37 people internationally all wow. got in touch and just said, yeah, yeah, I'm using play and I'm, I'm using it in my chemistry lab and I'm using it in my English lessons and I'm, I'm doing animations to help people in assessment and I'm doing blah, all these crazy, mad, wonderful things that were all about helping people grasp the difficult stuff. So fast forward, Stephen Brookfield and I wrote Engaging Imagination, which was taking a look at creative and playful approaches to how students learn to reflect on their work, life, progress, study, other. And then Chrissy and I followed up the magazine with a book called The Power of Play in Higher Education. Mm -hmm. um, and there we had 64 people um, uh, across the world who contributed their stories. Um, and once, once I'd done that, and in the recognition, the happy recognition that, you know, we had chemists, we had engineers, we had mathematicians, we had zoologists, we had botanists, you know, people from all the disciplines. This was already saying to me, everybody plays. They may not talk about it too much because some people are a little bit wary of this notion of play in higher education. Mm -hmm. but they're clearly doing it. They're people who are committed educators. They are serious. They're probably researching as well. They are absolutely passionate about doing the best for their students. And they are adopting these methods, not just because it's it's fun and a bit of a laugh when you've done the proper stuff, but actually because it is the proper stuff. Right. So when to the end of that book, um, I thought, well, I'm, I'm, I'm really, I just want to go on with this. But I'm very conscious that in that book, you know, yes, we did have an international set of contributors. But I thought, well, I'm interested in play around the world in higher education. How can I find out if this is a thing elsewhere? So that's the challenge I set myself for the value of play. So this is my own personal research project mm -hmm. that um, I'm now undertaking since um, leaving formal institutional life. Right. I'm very fortunate because I got to meet uh, one of the, the co-founders of Lego Serious Play uh, a year and a bit ago, uh, Professor Johan Roos. And he was interested in, in the work that I was doing and my interest in play research. And through him, um, I was lucky enough to be funded by the Imagination Lab, who are based oh, in Lausanne. Wow. So it's 
medical institution. And they funded me to do this two-year research project um, with three principal aims. So one is to continue to look at the use and value of play in higher education generally, particularly to look at um, play for the teaching of management concepts and theories, because mm -hmm. they're very interested in the intersection between play imagination and, uh, you know, management theory and the business world. And the third bit, which I'm particularly interested in, and the clues in the title, is this notion of value. You know, what, how do people value play? What does it mean to them? And, and so what I've been doing with that project is, and obviously the, the, the global pandemic situation we find ourselves in, the unfolding of the research has had to change shape quite substantially. Mm -hmm. um, but um, uh, my, <clears throat> at the moment, what I've been doing is I've run a survey which, which is ongoing, um, inviting people to talk about their use of play and also to comment on the different things, different reasons that play might be important to them or what they think it's good for. So that's been running. Um, I'm also doing one-to-one -one interviews with people about their use of play. And what I'm hoping to do as soon as we're able to be a bit more mobile, or actually even if we aren't through other means, this is where I'm going to have to use my imagination, <laughs> is to start working much more closely people you know my plan april to april 21 was literally to be on the road you know yeah. going to meet people work with them do free workshops for them exploring how you know the kinds of play that they can use because play play has to be considered in context you know what is it you want to do why are you doing it you know what's your subject like uh, what are your students like? What are you like? You know, what are the, there are lots of kinds of, you know, choices that you can make about the kind of play you will use. Somebody asked me the question in, an in, in, in a conference before we got closed down. Um, what is the best form of play I can use with my students? And of course, that's an unanswerable question. I can't, I, I, I don't know. You know, what are your students like? What are you like? What are you teaching? What what part of the module is it in? What does it relate to? You know, why do you want to do it in the first place? Um, you know, there are so many things that we can explore around, around what play is. But the value of play so far is a real joy for me because it's, it's introducing me to people I don't know. I'm getting the chance to start to see some really fascinating themes emerging from the interviews about their value of play. Mm -hmm. And just just, um, just to round it off, because I'm, I'm conscious I'm sort of rambling a bit again, um, this the theoretical filter that I'm really interested in uh, over and above this notion of value, and lots of play theorists talk about value, but I'm particularly interested in looking at the work of Brian Sutton Smith, who wrote this groundbreaking book called The Ambiguity of Play. And if you ever really want to understand the complexities of play, then he's your man, because he really, really goes into the detail of, of, well, of it all. Um, and one of, one of, in his um, last published work before, before he, he, he gave up writing and then died a few years later, was a, a draft manuscript he put together called Play for Life, Play as Emotional Survival, which I think is the most incredible title. I keep reading <laughs> books by people who are, you know, you go, oh, I wish I'd got that title first. That's just genius. <laughs> um, but when I drafted my survey, you know, 
and was asking lots of questions around, you know, what is play important for? What's its value? Is it for fun? Is it for making connection? Is it for this? And Sutton Smith, when he's looking at, at play theory, talks about survival. Now, in the animal world, obviously, course play is part of survival. Um, uh, and, and, and it sort of, he then explores what that means in, in human terms and cultural terms. And so when I designed the survey, I thought I'm going to put play as survival in, in there. You know, is it any good? And I did ask a friend of mine who's, who's a professor of psychology. I did say, is that a bit woo? I've got play, is play, you know, good for survival? Is that a bit, is that a bit far out, do you think, for a research <laughs> survey? And he went, no, stick it in. So, so I did. And it's been fascinating. You know, I don't want to say too much because obviously the survey's running, the interviews are still going. But so many people are saying, you know, strongly agree or agree to play as survival. So this already says to me, play has an absolutely fundamental importance in our lives for so many reasons. We don't understand it always in higher education because we confuse it. We have a superficial understanding of play and we think it's just messing about. Mm. Or, or like I said, you know, it's trivial, it's frivolous. If you use the word play, it sounds like maybe you're not being very grown up and using your students' tuition fees wisely in a university yeah. context. But actually, it's one of the biggest, most intricate, powerful concepts and sets of activities, beliefs, philosophies, whatever you want to say, that we could possibly use. You know, it, it, it's really, I don't know, my subsequent research project is going to be, why aren't you doing this? I think that's going to be its title, you know. <laughs> Pat, I don't know if I really answered your question. I kind of riffed off on one there, but I hope well, that that's kind of... No, and that's the beauty of this. Like, I ask a question and I know it's going to go off into a deep avenue and we get all the information plus more. Um, cool. I mean, you're helping people are all over that listen. I mean, you're already helping people, but the people that are listening here, I mean, you can't beat these stories or these knowledge. And um, I, I don't ever apologize for rambling because as a host, <laughs> I ramble a lot too. So don't worry about that. Um, the last thing I'd like to talk to you about linking that um, is something we were discussing before the show, which is the importance of imagination at all ages. Um, because Absolutely. We, we were discussing um, imagination should be something that's just celebrated and glorified and whatnot. But unfortunately, and I don't think it's intentional as you said before but i'd like both of us to try to bring the awareness of trying not to diminish or taking away from a child's or even an adult's imagination yeah. um so if we could yeah. talk about that for a couple minutes um that'd be absolutely. great absolutely and, and it ties into play it ties into value because you find yourself in self in certain contexts and you think you think of the workplace well, okay, I'm thinking of the workplace, or, but I'm sure everybody has been in a situation where you're sitting around a table, you're talking about how to solve a thorny problem or whatever, and, you know, somebody throws out something that's probably a little bit wacky, but, you know, all, all the kind of sensible things aren't working. And there'll, there'll be a whole, you know, bunch of voices around the table go, well, that will never work. Well, that that's not practical. Right. Well, how are you going to do And so we, we, we kind of deride it. We kind of crush things before they have a chance to get going. Right. Um, you see it, and it's interesting because, again, Sutton Smith and others talk about 
they're used in the context of play, but looking at, you know, adult interpretations of child's play and child's interpretations of child's play. And, and you know, the times when perhaps as adults we've said, we've kind of dismissed a child's imagination instead of just rolling with it, you know, um, or... You know, or, or maybe they've come up with some fantastical story and we've said, oh, but that's a fib, isn't it? Or, or whatever it is. And, and I, think, I think we need to think about, have we, without even knowing, have we put checks on, on a child's imagination? Right. Because we're judging from an adult perspective or we're not, we're not kind of thinking in the round again. I'd like to share another story, if I may. Okay. Um, and it's... It's, it's, it, it won't sound very imaginative, but I think it is about how, you know, the imagination comes in all sorts of shapes and forms. It's just like play to me in terms of it, it, it's complex, it's nuanced, it's hard to pin down. It can be used for good things. It can be used for less good things, rah, rah, rah. <clears throat> but when I was, I was about eight years old and I was in primary school and it was one of those rainy days and we're all stuck in and so we've been given painting to do because we can't go outside. And I remember <clears throat> trying to paint something and I was looking at these paints and I, so I try and, 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 and I remember painting whatever it was, can't remember what I was painting now and it, it wasn't working. So I was trying something else and that wasn't working. And so I tried something else and that wasn't working. And in the end, I was sort of looking at this and it was, the picture was just going from bad to worse really. And in the end I thought, well, I know, what if I blend all the colors together and then maybe, maybe I can see what that looks like. Right. So I blended them all together. So I basically ended up with a piece of paper that was brown paint. And the paint, the, the teacher came over and she stood at my shoulder and she just looked at me and she called the headmaster oh. and he came into the room and they both just stood and they looked at me and they shook their heads and they tutted. And I can't remember the words they used, but it was probably something about how naughty I'd been. <laughs> and then they walked away from the table and I, and I was left with that feeling of, I knew I'd been really bad but I couldn't work out why. Right. And I think it was, it was, it was, I was trying to imagine my painting and it wasn't working. They were not using their imaginations or even, even their patience to just ask the question, which is what are you doing? Right. And because then I could have, well, I tried doing this and it didn't work. You know, I was eight, I was able to string a sentence together. <laughs> and, and I think it is, you know, we, we are very clever as human beings of being able to crush people there, they definitely intended to crush me because they were certain I'd naughty, um, but they were wrong for once. Um, they, and so I think it, it's interesting how, you know, you see it also, you see it in big committee meetings, you see it in organizations, people are scared of using their imagination to say something in case they look silly, in case they look, like they're incompetent at their job in case somebody's able to point score against them, you know, all sorts of things like that. And I think also, you know, that if you, if you think of, um, uh, well, I was going to go, go riffing off on Jane Austen there, but I don't think I will. That's probably a <laughs> really bad avenue to go down. Um, but I think it, it's sometimes if you think of, of literature, so you've got the fantasy canon, you've got sci-fi, you've got all sorts of made-up worlds. <clears throat> and then you've got sort of, you know, classic literature like Shakespeare, like this, that and the other. And there will be 
There will be people who are total aficionados who love the fact that somebody can just conjure this different world and take them off into it. And then there will be other people who just see that as silly made up fantasy stuff. Um, so I think, again, I'm kind of wombling about here, but I, I think, I think sometimes, sometimes we just need to either pause before we speak or just allow allow for something to play out rather than than criticizing or putting somebody straight or whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, and and I, I think that, sorry, go ahead. No, I think, I think that's where, you know, play, imagination, creativity, you know, it allows, it allows you to do all those sorts of things. And, and you need to, because actually, you know, a lot of the sort of, um, creativity literature talks about the fact that some of the really kind of innovative or cutting edge forms of creativity are not about being practical or meeting a practical need, but they're just about being novel and about stretching the, the mind and the imagination for all sorts of, you know, other purposes, which are just as valid. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And I, I'm really glad you brought this up. Um, and, and I think, it's hard, it may be hard for people to really understand what's going on if they haven't experienced it. For me, yeah. like I've, even as an adult, I've been in the meeting when I tried to brainstorm something. And it was part imagination, part practicality, of course, because we're in a meeting and we're trying to come up with solutions and whatnot. But I also have a very, very wild imagination. I'll get into that in a second. But I experienced the, that's not going to work without even yeah. discussion. Yeah. And yeah. like I, I consider myself pretty strong-willed and I can handle those type of comments. And I wasn't, I wasn't mad at them. I, wa I wasn't breaking down in tears, but I kind of felt deflated. And I said, in my mind, I was like, why am I still sitting here? Um, yeah. If we're not even yeah. gonna have a discussion, because what they're really looking for is the answer right now, instead of, yeah. in, in that scenario, not all meetings, but in that scenario. And I said, and I just wanted to say, if we can use our imaginations and mix it with practical way or avenues to achieve a goal, we will yeah. have much more success than us sitting around at a table, quietly thinking of a very practical way, because um, we're not it's getting anywhere. Yeah, so um, yeah. I totally understand. Um, can, I, can I can I throw a thought in there? Because what you what you said there was really important, which is about you know if if we are uh, you know put down or, or silenced or whatever, after a while you just think, well, I'm just not going to bother then. And I think one, one if you look again at play theory, and I think this applies to the imagination. One of the things you touched on there, which is you know they're looking for the solution right now, that's because we are in this crazy kind of time time pressured against the clock we're always you know trying to get everything resolved in the next five minutes and of course that's not a healthy way for anybody to live but also it, certainly not in a sustained way everybody has to have those you know those moments of pressure um but again going back to animal play theorists they talk about how animals can't play if they're sick or they're stressed or they're anxious exactly the same for, stu for, right. for humans you know and i think one of the things I hardly, 
I hope this is not going to sound insensitive as I say it. And I really, really don't mean it to be because what's going on in the world right now is horrible and there are people having to be in the front line of dealing with illness and death and tragedy and loss and awful, awful things. But there are a bunch of us, and I'm lucky enough to be in that position, we're very protected. The, the most we have to do right now is stay in our homes and stay right. out of trouble. And, and I'm constantly hearing stories of people who they have time, therefore they're creating, they're playing more, they're imagining more, they're, they're suddenly finding wellsprings of ideas and possibilities Possibilities and things that they can do that are resurging because that time constraint has been taken away. Obviously not if you are a doctor in a frontline hospital right. or anything horrific like that. But I'm, I'm just talking about those of us who are the lucky ones who, who are just kind of, you know, where we are and thankfully not sick or anything awful. But it is fascinating. And I think it speaks too to the resilience of the human spirit. You know, you if you look at again, I'm I'm kind of going off on one, but if you look at a lot of stories of really harrowing, dreadful times in human life, and I'm thinking now of things like the concentration camps camps in the Second World War, people played, they sang, they invented games, they wrote stuff, you know, against the most appalling odds, there's this kind of imagination and resourcefulness with so little and so that that again takes us back to to the notion that both Sutton Smith and lots of other people talk about which is actually play is more than just a visceral need it's genetic it's within us whether whether we choose to have it or not whatever it looks like in however we manifest it it's it's just part of who we are like blood and muscle and sinew and you know everything else now I'm just getting completely off on one, so no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to shift. that was very beautifully said, and I think that's going to reach a lot of people. Um, so I really wanted to thank you for that. And the other thing um, I'll end with is just what I was talking about earlier, is the benefits of allowing imagination. Um, earlier I was talking about how role-playing, as a child for mm -hmm. me, led me to experience different scenarios and different types of conversation whether it was self-talk or playing with other people. Um, we, we were in these rare scenarios um, where we can start to begin to learn how to read facial expressions, to begin to learn how to read body language. And top of that, we can make believe stories um, that carry an array of emotional focus, such as frustration, heroics, saving someone in need and celebration. Um, so that's, and, and also what we talked about earlier, it just teaches kids the different ways um, to access who they want to be to build their identity. Um, yeah, absolutely. So. And I think I think it's also it's about you know when you allow space, possibility, time, even if it's just a few minutes, or or you give kids or adults, any of us, you know, different opportunities to express ourselves, whether it's you know through physical activity, whether it's um, you know, through through making, creating, or whether it's using Lego or writing poetry, whatever it is, you know, it's not it's not about finding what they already know or what we already know. It's about finding what we don't already know. Yeah. And so you you often start off thinking you're going to make one thing, and then you end up 
making something else or you know novelists often talk about they start off thinking they're going to write one book and then the book takes over and it takes them to wherever and and you listen to screenwriters talking about characters they've invented um you know when when I so we touched on Lego Serious Play and one of the the beauties of the Lego Serious Play approach is you give you you ask a question for people to respond to and they they build their responses using Lego but you don't you know you you don't approach it like an architect would you don't storyboard it plan it spend days getting ready and then build this thing you've already invented you 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 rummage through the bricks you, you and and you. You end up building, nine times out of ten, people will say, I didn't know I was going to build that, right. or I didn't know I was going to say that. And so I think it is allowing allowing for these journeys, for the, for the unplanned to come out. And we, at the last university I worked in, for three years in a row, we ran a big play and creativity festival. And two of those years, we created a big play tent, and we had all sorts of uh, lovely activities going on inside. But we also had a research professor in there who was looking at work with uh, the relationship between walking and creativity, and he did it all through the play tent. But not so many people um, who went into uh, the tent, staff and students, said things like, I've been having conversations with people I never talk to about things I never talk about. Mm. And that is incredibly important to me. That is about players' connection. That is about even unconsciously putting down your preconceptions about, oh, well, I don't know that person, I don't, you know, right. or, or I think I know what that person is like. But through play, through creativity, through the imagination, you know, you are constantly surprised by what people contain, what they know, what they dream of, compared to what you think you know about them just by standing on the outside or, or, or bumping into each other in a corridor. And I think that's that's incredibly important. And of course, the other thing that people said time and again, uh, although you know, play is something that people can attach all sorts of forms of value to, but but and you'll know this as a PE teacher, it's play as a means of mental well-being. Yes. You know, people, people, we ran the festival, it was crazy, we ran the festival in the last taught week of the academic year. So you can imagine, mm. pressure, mayhem, deadlines, yeah. assessments <laughs> looming. And we did think, are we mad? Every year we asked ourselves this question, are we mad? Can we do it another time? There's never a good time. And so we did it. But we had people coming up and saying, actually, this was the best time to do it because... I was so stressed yeah. and I allowed myself 10 minutes and actually I felt totally different. I was able to just go and just do something else and it calmed the mind and, and I then felt better able to go back and do whatever it was I did or I, or I learned something new or I got ideas for my lecture or I've got something I'm going to share with my team. And, you know, it's that regenerative aspect of play as well as the calming value, I think, yeah. is so important. Um, yeah, I couldn't agree more, and that was uh, that was brilliant. I enjoyed everything we discussed today, and uh, I think that's probably one of the most important aspects um, that you can focus on when not only with play but using your imagination and um, having people set up uh, structures um, where you can celebrate imagination as well as play. Absolutely. Uh, so I wanted, Absolutely. Yeah, I wanted to thank you for coming on today. I really enjoyed getting to know you and having this conversation. Um, as passionate as I am about play, and I, I try to 
learn new things every day, and I learned a million new things today. So thank you so much, Dr. Allison. Uh, Pat, thank you so much for having me. I've really, really enjoyed talking to you, and I hope I get the chance to do it another day. Oh, for sure. We'll definitely have you back. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you.